Um, if you are, I don't know where you live, but California, we just got word of another round of shutdowns for the next three weeks, which is a great time of year. Everybody's certainly excited about that. He said facetiously. Um, but if there's a silver lining on maybe your Thanksgiving gatherings and whatever limited gatherings you have in the weeks to come, um, it's that you don't have to worry about inviting that awkward family member. And I'm sure that that is none of you who are watching at any point. That doesn't apply to you. It's always somebody else in the family who's the awkward family member. Um, but you probably know what I, I mean. It's the Maybe it's the offensive uncle that somebody makes a comment and you know exactly what is about to come out of his mouth, but you hope it won't, uh, but he never ceases to disappoint. Um, it's the, it's the, the family member who has no filter, just totally lacks any sort of social awareness of, about what's appropriate and what's not reading the room and, and the context of other people gathering around the table. So if there's an upside of not being able to, to gather with quite as many people, then you have a legitimate reason to not, not invite or get together with that awkward family member that makes everybody uncomfortable. And of course, we can, we can joke around about uh, this time of year, holidays and gatherings uh, that, that can be awkward around a dinner table. But we also want to take some time this morning to acknowledge that it is unfortunately a reality that the, the messed up family dynamic goes much deeper than just uh, that family table, uh, those gatherings occasionally. Some of us have come up, uh, come from broken homes, from toxic relationships, um, and we have had uh, some just awful shame-filled experiences and those things all shape uh, how we have in the past interacted with our family and even today as we continue to, to interact with our family. And I'm talking about the, the real heavy stuff, abuse sometimes, um, whether it's emotional or physical and, and whether it's based on maybe addiction, uh, alcoholism or a, a drug addiction. Um, maybe some of us have experienced traumatic death in the family. Um, have dealt with desertion or neglect. And, and the list goes on and on. And those things that happen to us in our lives, um, that's trauma that can still impact us today, uh, depending on how we have coped with it. And, and we're not just talking about some, some subplot from a movie. Uh, we're not talking about this idyllic, leave it to beaver family type scenario, but a really messy, dysfunctional and, and disorderly home and family life that many of us have have come from where that was the norm. And understandably, that is that is uh, something that is makes us uncomfortable. It's embarrassing regarding families. So if you grew up in that type of home, then you know, don't you that that you weren't excited to to bring the date home to meet mom and dad for one reason or another that that even being out in public with certain family members was something that that terrified you being seen or being made visible and where where healthy homes that don't have this kind of dysfunction just take it for granted that there's a normal routine that there is uh just the normal um structure of life can't probably appreciate those who come from broken traumatic family situations where the norm is actually trying to hide or conceal that dysfunction from others. So the thought of family time together or the holidays doesn't evoke nostalgia. Um, it's not something that, that, that builds up warm, fuzzy feelings in us, but, but rather is downright terrifying and even raises anxiety levels because maybe you've been accustomed to thinking, how am I going to get out of it this year? Or how am I going to get through it? So if you are, are somebody that has come from that kind of background and that dealt with that kind of trauma in your family, there can be really 
and I don't, these aren't exhaustive, but, but two ways to, to cope with that that come to mind. Um, and neither of them are entirely healthy. They're, they're understandable, but one might be to simply anticipate and look forward to that day when you are done with family as soon as you possibly can to, to move out of that house, get away from, cut off any ties to family. And to be fair, some are in a situation where maybe if their physical life and health or even emotional is, is threatened, that might be the best course of action to get away from that to protect and guard yourself. Um, and that can then lead to years, maybe even decades of being cut off from family. But here's why that, that can be a challenge and maybe not the, the best, healthiest thing to do because if you don't ever deal with that trauma, or learn to cope with it in a healthy way with the very people that were the source of it or caused it, then you may be dealing with that or coping with it in an unhealthy way the rest of your life. The other unhealthy or, or dangerous, of course, reaction to having that kind of a, a broken down family can be the other extreme where I actually start to identify with that. I kind of draw the conclusion that I came from a messed up family and therefore I am messed up too. And we just start to embrace that identity because uh, there's no other choice. That's, that's where we came from. That's our roots. And this becomes especially dangerous um, and devastating when that leads into a, a tailspin of self-destructive behavior. Um, or even worse, when that behavior is perpetuated onto someone else. And those who are, are familiar with trauma within the family or abuse recognize that statistically those that commit those kinds of, of crimes or acts are often also victims themselves. Hurt people hurt people, don't they? And so uh, as long as that is the, the case, then there is going to be this unhealthy practice of validating that behavior to oneself or to others because that's just who I am. I'm messed up. Understandably, this is not an easy topic to deal with for some, and, and the reason is because anytime you're dealing with trauma that somebody has experienced or a, a bad um, past or an un unhealthy home that they were raised in, you always run the risk in, in bringing up those issues. You run the risk of going through and reliving that trauma all again, all over again. And so it is always a, a risky thing, but here's why it's essential to, to give thought to that, to consider that. Because if this hope that we are talking about through this series and this morning, if this hope is going to be anything other than a seasonal buzzword, if it's going to be anything more than just a theological concept that is this pie-in-the-sky impossible-to-grasp thing, but if this is going to be a real hope that heals, then we have to be real about the hurt that is caused. So that we can say that and see that we do really have a savior who promises us that very thing, hope for messed up people. So if you came from a messed up family in the past or you're dealing with it in the present, rest assured Jesus promises you there is hope. Here's some good news. Might sound kind of wrong to say that, but if you come from a good uh, 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 dysfunctional, if you come from a family that was, was broken, a, a broken home, you're in good company. So did Jesus. If you have the time to look through those verses from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, you'll see a, a whole listing. And any genealogy that we have in Scripture inevitably raises questions. We don't know why Matthew necessarily categorized the names that he did. 
um, why he broke them into four teams. We don't know um, necessarily why he included some names and excluded other names because it's not an exhaustive list of his entire genealogy. But amidst all of those questions that we have surrounding this genealogy, there's one conclusion that we can draw. Jesus came from a messed up family. That you look through those lists of names that are there and you see just one after another, just a whole bunch of messed up people. You consider the names that are there and, and you've got all kinds of people. You've got liars, you've got deceivers, schemers, adulterers, idolaters. You, you have uh, polygamists, you have murderers, you have prostitutes. You even have bold and blatant unbelievers. And this is the line of Jesus, the line of the Savior. So much for being able to claim some sort of squeaky clean lineage that he came from. Well, Now, if that's the case for Jesus, and, and we talk about being able to identify that coming from, from broken homes, maybe you're one of those people that, that actually has expressed that interest in kind of tracing your family tree or your roots or your ancestry. And nowadays, it's as easy as ever. You can send in a, a DNA sample and you can, get a, you can get all kinds of information on your family tree. Who were your ancestors? And some people are fascinated. And it's kind of a neat thing to think about, to, to know your roots and know where you came from. And I, I think it would be exhilarating. Most of us would agree. It'd be pretty exhilarating to find out that you came from like royalty or somebody famous in history. And if you found that out, if you discovered that you were related to this king or that queen or nobility or a conqueror, you wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even think twice about sharing that information with other people, right? You'd be proud of it. But what if, what if in all of your digging through your ancestry, what if instead you found out that you actually had ties to a line of criminals or convicts? What if instead you found out that you came from somebody or were connected to somebody or a relative of somebody that committed atrocious, despicable acts and that's what that person is known for in history. Pretty safe to say you wouldn't be broadcasting that maybe for others to know. And yet that is exactly the line of history that we have of Jesus. The types of people that are listed in this genealogy, what, what does that say about the sinless Son of God that, that Jesus came from these kinds of people? Here's what it says. It says he can relate. If you come from a broken, dysfunctional family, so did Jesus. And why is that especially significant to know that our real flesh and blood Savior, a real person, came from a, a real line of sinners, sinful people? Again, think of how well we can relate to that. If the alternative had been that if you could hypothetically kind of dream up this, this dream team, really, of, of a, an, an ancestral lineage, where it was people that, that all we know about them in history is their, their great character, that these were just good people. And now you find that Jesus came from that line. Wouldn't it be a little more difficult to, to find yourself believing that Jesus actually came for somebody like you? From a messed up family? With messed up people in your history? But that's not the line that God chose to see our Savior through. Instead, it's one list after another of messed up people and therefore we can relate. We can believe that when, when God says that he sent his son into the world for, for sinners, his own family line are the very people that he came to save. And that's what's remarkable. It's not just a focus on seeing th that Jesus came from messed up people. 
but remembering that he came for messed up people. And that is more remarkable than even this genealogy that Matthew lists. And when we remember that Jesus came for messed up people, then we also more easily embrace that that means Jesus came for messed up me. In the lesson that is serving as our second lesson today from 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul shows us what it's like to embrace that identity as a sinner, not to sugarcoat it, not to, to try and pretend it doesn't exist or that we're better than we are. This is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Why was the Apostle Paul able to embrace that title, though I would argue with him that he isn't the worst because I know myself, I, I certainly would contend for that title when we know our own sin. Because that, that means that Paul recognized that if he's a sinner, and even the worst of sinners, then that means that he is exactly the type of person for whom Jesus came. And we can relate to that because that means that, that if I come from messed up people and I myself am a messed up person and that's who Jesus came for, then count me in by all means. And here's the beautiful thing, since God doesn't differentiate, he doesn't distinguish between only slightly messed up people and then severely messed up people, that means that I am covered, that I am included. And, and this is maybe a little bit of speculation on my part, I can't say with certainty, but as you look through this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, there is a, a, a way that he categorizes these listings of people and it almost seems as if that first grouping really is kind of resembling family, uh, the patriarchs. And then the second grouping is royalty, it's all kings. And then the third group is probably the least familiar. We might even call them a list of nobodies. I don't know how many of those names you're even familiar with. Maybe Zerubbabel, which is not only fun to say, um, but maybe the most familiar of those names. But if you think of those different categories, what do they really illustrate for us? That you can look for the ideal perfect family in Scripture and even the ones that are listed in Jesus' genealogy, you're not going to find it. And you might have a higher expectation of, of those who are more sanctified or, or live and, and behave themselves when it comes to royalty, but in fact, it's quite the opposite. They're even, even worse off than the patriarchs and the families in the first grouping. And then, of course, you have that last list of nobodies. Now, if, if those are the three categories, and Jesus came from those people and came to save those people, he came for them, then they all have that in common, don't they? They all have in common the hope of a Christ who came for messed up people. And all of them are included, and so are we. If you look again at all of those names that are listed in that genealogy, there's one name that stands out. And it's actually listed twice. It's in the first verse and it's in the last verse of this section. And that name, of course, that title is Messiah, a reference to Jesus. Messiah, the anointed one or the chosen one, is what it means. And everybody in the Old Testament and New Testament times knew that referred to the promise of a Savior. And notice how you have this batch of just messed up people in this listed genealogy, but on bookends, on each end, at the beginning and at the end, you have the Messiah, as if Matthew is trying to illustrate that, that it's the Messiah who fixes this mess. Truly, and it's a little cheesy, admittedly, but, but we, can, we can say we put the mess in Messiah. Or better stated, we can say that, that God placed our mess on the Messiah. 
so that we don't have to suffer the consequences of our own sinful mess, so that we aren't left wondering, where do we stand with God because of our mess? Because the Messiah cleaned up our mess. It's the very reason that he came into our world. God made him the sin bearer of our mess so that you and I have hope. Not some conceptual hope, not something that's just, again, a trendy buzzword, but real hope for messed up people who come from messed up families. And isn't that a remarkable thing of, of Jesus? When we look at, at Jesus, even his life and his ministry, never did he run away from sinful people. He actually gravitated toward them. He actually, he actually was drawn to them to proclaim to them that he came for them. And, and when Jesus died, he didn't die to get away from sinners. He died for sinners. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't to, to elevate himself or set himself apart from them, but to see that he could spend eternity with the very sinners he came to save. Everything that Jesus came was for messed up people. So friends, let that allow how you look at messed up people to shift. Look at them differently. See the messed up people of this world and yes, even of your own family as the very people that Jesus came to save. And furthermore, recognize that, that many of them are very likely in a situation where they are beyond hope. Probably very acutely aware of the collateral damage that their decisions, their actions, their past, their present behavior have wrought and the self-destructive, not only on themselves, but on their family members and everyone around them. And they are probably at the point of feeling like they're at a dead end. There is no hope. Could you be a, a conduit of hope for them? Could you be the one to point out that, that it wasn't the know-it-alls, the goody-two-shoes, the have-it-alls that Jesus came to save? But the Messiah came for messed up people, just like them, just like you, just like me. And I know it's, it's admittedly a very challenging thing, especially to share that hope with, with maybe family members who are the ones that hurt you, who are the very reason you came from a dysfunctional or a broken family. But here's where that hope is so powerful. That hope is greater than the pain that anyone else could cause you. That hope is so powerful that it allows you to, to give up bearing any grudge against anyone who has wronged you. That hope is powerful enough that, that when you see the forgiveness you have in Christ, it enables you to let that forgiveness flow from you to the very people who have wounded and hurt you the most in this life. That's a powerful hope, isn't it? A hope for messed up people that we have in Christ. Is there... Is there someone in your life this, this Christmas that the absolute very best gift that you could give to them is not something you purchase, not something you buy or pick up at a store, but the gift of knowing that they have hope in Christ because Christ came for messed up people just like us.